February 1999, Paul Skiba and his employee Lorenzo Chivers headed back home after working two moving jobs. With them was Paul's nine-year-old daughter, Sarah, who was spending the weekend with her dad. When Paul did not return Sarah to her mother after the weekend visit, an arrest warrant was issued for Paul for kidnapping his daughter. But the family uncovered evidence that proved that things were not what they seemed. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I want to thank Daniel for suggesting this case. He brings it up online when we get talking about cold cases that we want solved, and I finally got it on the schedule to cover. There really isn't as much coverage out there on this case as I would have expected, considering we have multiple victims, and one of them is a child. The most comprehensive work on the story was done by Jessica Centers, who wrote about it for Westward more than 12 years ago. I tried to reach out to her, but the info I have for her is outdated. Getting anyone's current information on the internet isn't that hard, but I don't like to cross lines too much and just contact someone at their very not-true-crime-related present-day job, so I did not make contact with her. But with the limited resources I could pull, I feel like I got enough information that we can do an episode on this case. Let's start with Paul Skiba, who grew up in a small town in Minnesota where he made a little bit of trouble as a teenager. In his late teens slash very early 20s, he was arrested on a drug charge when he got caught with a Schedule II narcotic. Anyone who knows about how they do the schedules with narcotics, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, he could have been found with a Vicodin that wasn't prescribed to him, or he could have had meth and anything in between. Regardless, Paul ended up moving to Denver with his girlfriend shortly after his arrest. It would have been 1980 or 1981, so he was right about 20 years old. The only problem with this move was that he left Minnesota without having wrapped up that drug case. When he missed his court date, a warrant was issued for his arrest. Paul started using an alias when he applied for jobs so that he could pass a basic 1980s-level background check. And it worked. He got a job installing sprinklers before he got hired on at a moving company. He ended up really liking the work at the moving company, so he jumped at a chance to work at a different company that specialized not in whole house moves, but in transporting large pieces of furniture and antiques for well-to-do clients. Anyone who has hired movers knows how frustrating it is when delicate things get broken when they're being transported. So this company really built up a good reputation as being careful, so the customers were plentiful. 
When the owner ended up retiring, Paul and his cousin bought the trucks from him and kept the business, Tough Movers, going strong. Around the time he was looking at buying the business, that old drug charge from Minnesota caught up to him, but he managed to plead out and get a deferred sentence, plus two years unsupervised probation, which is essentially to say nothing really happened. But someone else was also dealing with legal trouble at this time, and it was his business partner and cousin, Herbert Himes. Herbert was arrested for robbery and was given a six-year sentence. Paul was left to essentially run the business himself while Herbert was in jail, which he had no issue with. He was very good at it. Paul and his girlfriend from Minnesota eventually broke up, and he started dating Michelle Russell. Things then moved in the usual order, but rather quickly. She moved in, they got married, and then in 1989, they had a daughter named Sarah. Their relationship was never rock solid, and it fell apart when Sarah was a baby. When Paul's own parents also separated, he talked his mom, Sharon, into moving to Colorado with him in the early 1990s. They shared an apartment until 1993, when Paul bought a house in Thornton, which is north of Denver. When Michelle and Paul split, Michelle moved with Sarah to Granby, nearly two hours away from where Paul was. Paul felt he was not getting enough access to Sarah, and he and Michelle found themselves in court a few times hammering out the details of their custody. Eventually, they settled into a pretty standard routine, with Michelle keeping primary custody, and Paul got the every Wednesday and every other weekend visits during the school year. Then he would also get Sarah for the majority of her summer break, and they would go fishing and camping and host backyard barbecues together. Sharon, living with Paul, really worked out because she could help with Sarah when Paul had her for visits. Because of the distance, though, the Wednesday nights were difficult, or rather would be for most people. But Paul made them happen without fail. He did not want to miss a minute with his daughter. So he would drive nearly two hours and pick her up from school. They would get a hotel room in the area and spend the evening swimming at the hotel pool. In the morning, Paul would then drop Sarah off at school and head back home. Usually when Sarah was home with Paul for her weekend visits, he would really limit how much work he did so that he could spend all of the time with her. But of course, he couldn't always do that as a business owner, and he had to work during the summer when she was there full-time. So that's where Grandma Sharon came in. Because of this living arrangement, Paul and Sharon, their mother-son bond really deepened, as did Sharon's relationship with Sarah. And as for romantic relationships, Paul did date after his divorce, of course, but the most notable relationship 
was his on-again, off-again relationship with a woman named Teresa Donovan. Teresa was in her 20s, about 10 years younger than Paul. Sometimes when the relationship was good, she would live with Paul, which didn't work out for everyone else since Sharon didn't really like Teresa. While she wasn't specific as to what she meant, Sharon told Jessica Centers with Westward that she didn't like Teresa being around Sarah. Teresa also had severe arthritis and couldn't work, so sometimes when that flared, she needed a lot of help from those around her, and that included Paul when the two were together. In 1997, Paul and Teresa broke up for several months, but got back together in early 1998. Then Teresa found out she was pregnant, due in November 1998. Paul initially rented her a trailer so she had a space of her own to live, but as her due date got closer, he moved her into the house with him, Sharon, and Sarah. He assumed she was going to need help with the baby, particularly given her arthritis. Paul confided in a friend that he had doubts over paternity due to the timing. Teresa had gotten pregnant the one time they were together after several months of being apart. But Paul questioned her ability to care for a newborn, so it seemed like a better situation for the sake of the baby for Paul and Sharon to be available to help out. And that was regardless of whether he was the father or not. After the baby boy was born, the situation only continued to deteriorate. Sharon ended up having to go back to Minnesota to help out with her own mother, who was very ill. Without Sharon there to help with the baby on a daily basis, Teresa turned to Sarah, who was only nine years old, and asked her to babysit. At least once, Paul came home after work to find Teresa over at the neighbor's house hanging out and Sarah home alone with this tiny baby. To a friend, Paul characterized what Teresa was doing at the neighbor's house as partying. And he said he would come home at other times to find Teresa in bed while, again, Sarah had the baby. So Paul told this friend that he was considering kicking Teresa out and pursuing full custody of the baby pending the paternity test. He felt like all Teresa really cared about was partying. After everything Paul had gone through with being in and out of court over custody of Sarah, I can't imagine he was looking forward to doing it again So I think this tells us that he was at the end of his rope with the situation if a custody battle seemed like the best option. Paul was also looking at being back in court over Sarah's visitation as well. Things had calmed down over the years, but then Michelle had recently told Paul that she was seriously considering a move to Eugene, Oregon. Suddenly, Sarah wouldn't be two hours away, but rather 20 hours away. 
That means no every other weekend, no Wednesday nights. It would just be visits on school holidays. They were going to have to figure out an entirely new schedule, or Paul would have to go to court to try to stop the move or to get primary custody. None of these options would be cheap or easy, so Paul was basically getting ready to take on two custody battles at the same time. On Friday, February 5th, 1999, Paul told his mother over the phone that he was kicking Teresa out. Sharon was in Minnesota. At this point, her mother had died, so she was there helping settle things, and Paul just needed to know that he could count on her support. It was one thing for her to help with Sarah every other weekend, but this is a three-month-old baby full-time that he was considering taking on. He knew he was going to need help, and Sharon was up for helping Paul and her grandchildren with whatever they needed. Paul was going to tell Teresa to be out by the end of the weekend, and he said he would check back in with Sharon at that point and let her know what was going on. Paul had Sarah that weekend, so he drove to Granby to pick her up from school at 3.30, as usual, on Friday. The next day, on Saturday, February 6th, a witness at Paul's house overheard Paul and Teresa having a loud and extended argument. Then on Sunday, February 7th, Paul agreed to take over a shift for one of his employees who had a family event. He hadn't planned to work that weekend at all because he had Sarah, but he only had a few employees, so it wasn't like he could just call anyone in as backup. But instead of leaving Sarah with Teresa, he took her along on the job with him. Paul had two jobs that day, and his employee, 36-year-old Lorenzo Chivers, was helping him. Lorenzo, like Paul, was not scheduled to work that day, but he was filling in for someone else who called in sick. Lorenzo was a fairly new employee. He lived with Teresa's sister, Bobby Joe, which is how Paul and Lorenzo met. Lorenzo was friendly and he was a hard worker, so his few months at Tough Movers had gone well. Lorenzo had two children with his estranged wife, and his 15-year-old son, Josh, lived with him full-time, and he would see his daughter on regular visits. So he also understood Paul balancing time with his daughter with work duties, since he was more or less in the same boat. Around 8.30 in the morning, Sarah, Paul, and Lorenzo were at Tough Movers, getting one of the moving trucks. At 10.30, they showed up for the first job. At 12.50, they were done with it and eating lunch. They then went to the second job and finished around 5.30. As they drove to the Tough Movers parking lot to drop the truck off, Sarah talked on the phone with a 12-year-old relative of Teresa's and said that they were on their way to return the truck and then would head home. The reported timeline of this call is inconsistent, with some reports saying that it was made while they were heading back to the moving lot, 
and a media release saying that they arrived at Tough Movers at 6.15 and Sarah made the call at 6.23, meaning she called after they got back and not on the way. Regardless, Sarah and Paul never made it home. Teresa said she called the police and they blew her off since it really just amounted to her boyfriend coming home late from work. Teresa then called Sharon in Minnesota and told her that Paul and Sarah never came home. Either Sunday night or Monday morning, Sarah's mother Michelle called the police. Paul hadn't returned Sarah after his weekend visit. Since she told the police that she recently informed Paul about her plans to move, the police issued a warrant for Paul's arrest, assuming this was custodial interference on Paul's part. This kind of surprised me that they issued a warrant so quickly, because I can't tell you how many times my friends have had an ex keep their kids past the parenting time, and they're always told it's a civil matter and that the police won't intervene. But in this case, they jumped right on the custodial kidnapping trail and issued this warrant. But the warrant was about all they did. It doesn't appear that they actually searched for Paul or Sarah. Meanwhile, on Monday, Lorenzo's son Josh called his mother Misha. His dad hadn't come home from work the day before and hadn't called to tell him what was going on. So Misha asked to talk to Bobby Joe, the woman Lorenzo was living with. Bobby Joe said she hadn't heard from Lorenzo either, but that she knew he was not coming home. She just had a bad feeling that something horrible must have happened. This seemed a little dramatic, seeing as Lorenzo hadn't even been gone 24 hours at this point. But regardless, Josh went to stay with his mother while they waited to hear from his father. So this isn't just Paul and Sarah missing. Lorenzo was missing, too. Also on Monday, so again, we're on the day after Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo were last seen, another employee named Jerry went to the secured Tough Movers parking lot to get started with work for the day. He was a little surprised that Paul and Lorenzo were not there since they had a job that morning, and Jerry was a little late himself getting there so he would have expected them to be there and waiting for him. Jerry went up to the gate and tried to unlock it, but he noticed the lock had been changed. This would happen periodically when Paul would fire someone or someone who had a key would quit. He would change the gate lock. Cheap and simple security. It wasn't like Paul fired people all the time, but the job did have a relatively high turnover rate. For one thing, Paul did not like to hold people's pasts against them. So he would hire people regardless of their record, work or criminal. And some people who have a bad work history have it because they're not good employees. 
So these people didn't last very long. Paul would also hire the family members of friends to help them out, and that wasn't always a good situation either, since they were not hired on merit. And of course, moving expensive items was hard and careful work. So a lot of people would spend one week doing it and then quit when their sore muscles won out. So Jerry assumed someone had been fired. And he also assumed the firing may have had to do with the position of one of the moving trucks on the lot. Paul always had it backed into its spot. But the person who parked it this time had pulled into the spot nose first and hadn't even bothered to straighten the truck out in its parking spot. Jerry, who was not able to get onto the lot without the key for the new lock, waited outside the gate, but Paul and Lorenzo never showed. So the police were contacted again, and they were still not worried. Paul had just taken Sarah in this custody battle, and he would surface soon enough. And I guess his employee of a few months decided to abandon his own kids to help Paul hide out. Somehow, that made sense. On Wednesday, when the three were still missing without a trace, Jerry convinced a Westminster, Colorado police officer to meet him at Tough Movers to look around. The two jumped over the gate to get onto the lot. Jerry had last been on the lot on Saturday, so he looked around thinking he would see what's changed. Is anything out of place from where it was on Saturday? He noticed a new puddle of oil. There was a piece of plywood that was partially covering this spot but the officer completely brushed it off. In his view, it just looked like someone changed their oil there. Then Jerry looked in the truck that was parked at that odd angle, and he made a comment to the police officer that it looked like someone had cleaned the inside of it. The officer opened the truck and looked in there. He didn't put on gloves or do anything else to protect the evidence and he determined there was nothing suspicious about a clean truck and left. On Thursday, February 11th, Lorenzo's son went to his dad's house to pick up more of his clothing. It looked like he might be staying with his mom longer than they expected. When they pulled up to the house, Bobby Joe had left all of Josh's things boxed up at the door. His entire room had been cleared out. This was four days after Lorenzo went missing that Bobby Joe put his 15-year-old out as though Lorenzo wasn't coming back. It seemed that Bobby Joe really did believe her feeling that Lorenzo was gone forever. And Teresa had the same feeling about Paul and Sarah. She told Sharon on the phone that she consulted a psychic who said that Paul and Sarah were dead. The psychic also said they could find Paul's car near a body of water or close to gravel. So when Sharon got back to Colorado on February 13th, six days after Paul and Sarah were last seen, 
she hired a helicopter. I should actually back that up a step. Sharon had been calling the police during the week she was in Minnesota, and she got nowhere. They kept saying this was a custody dispute. But Sharon said that didn't make sense. Paul knew he would lose custody if he played games like this. He would lose his business, his house, his chance at custody of the new baby, and the chance to keep Sarah in Colorado. And it's not like Sarah was on the verge of leaving right that second and he had no other options. He still had a lot of options. They hadn't even gone to court yet. Going on the run for something that might happen didn't make a lot of sense. So Sharon didn't just jump to taking over the search for Paul and Sarah and hiring a helicopter for fun. She tried to go through the authorities, and she couldn't get them to do anything. Sharon had the helicopter pilot take her around Westminster, where the Tough Movers parking lot was, but also out to where the South Platte River flows. There are quite a few small lakes and ponds along this river. So basically, this is an area consistent with what Teresa claimed the psychic said. Sharon was hoping that she could at least spot Paul's car, but nothing was found. On Sunday, one week after the three were last seen, Teresa called one of Paul's friends named Rich. Rich hadn't heard anything that was going on. He had no idea that Paul was even missing. So he and his wife immediately offered to help search. They helped hang up flyers that included information on Paul's car. However, the license plate number on the flyer turned out to be wrong. And most reports indicate that they got that license plate number from Teresa. That same afternoon, Rich and his wife Carol met Sharon at the Tough Movers lot to check things out. Like Jerry, Rich immediately noticed the odd way the truck was parked. Rich and Carol climbed over the gate to look around, encouraging Sharon to wait outside for them. Rich had helped Paul work on the engine of one of the other trucks recently, so he did what Jerry did. He tried to figure out what looked out of place since the last time he was there. And what Rich saw was pretty obvious. When he rebuilt the engine on that other truck, it didn't have bullet holes on the side of it. Then he and Carol noticed a blood smear on the door of the big truck, the one that the police officer had already looked at, and then they saw what appeared to be a piece of a scalp on the windshield. Rich and Carol quickly got on the other side of the gate and called the police. This evidence had not been noticed earlier by Jerry or the police officer because they didn't really do a full search. There had been no comprehensive search of that parking lot until seven days after Paul, Lorenzo, and Sarah disappeared. But this complete search was going to wait a few more hours because when Westminster police arrived, they told everyone to leave. There was no reason to be there when this was clearly a custodial issue. 
they were sticking with this. When Rich pointed out the blood in the bullet holes, it was brushed off as maybe someone cut themselves. They suggested the bullet holes could have happened while the truck was being driven around and not at the lot. Rich pointed out that the truck had no engine in it, so it would have been tricky to drive it anywhere. The bullet holes absolutely happened on the lot in the time since he was last there. Westminster, however, was still convinced, in spite of bullet holes, tissue, and blood, that Paul kidnapped Sarah with Lorenzo's help. It was hours later, around midnight, when a police officer from Thornton showed up. Now, that's where the missing persons report for Sarah had been filed, because that's where Paul lived, even though the tough movers lot was in Westminster. So there was a little bit of a jurisdictional back and forth before Thornton took over and Westminster left. The officer then got everyone's information, and around 3 a.m., he told them they could go home. They were going to take the trucks into evidence and secure the lot. Hours later, Sharon drove by and saw that the gate was open. They had not locked it, and there was no crime scene tape up. From the time Jerry had shown up on Monday and everyone left at 3 a.m. a week later, at least a dozen people, if not more, had walked on the lot, and now it was open for anyone else to do the same. Paul's father and brother flew in from Minnesota to Colorado to help with the search at this point, and the search was still pretty much just friends and family. The media finally picked up the story of three missing people, but still ran it as a possible custody battle. But at least they were getting their pictures out there. On Wednesday, February 17th, Jerry, Paul's employee, was driving around searching, and he spotted Lorenzo's car. It was in an apartment building parking lot, not too far from the moving company. Lorenzo had no known connection to that place. When his car was processed, it was completely clean. I'm pretty sure they didn't even find his fingerprints in it. On February 27th, 10 days after Lorenzo's car was found, Paul's car was located by the Denver police. It was a good 10 to 15 miles away from the moving company where it was last known to be. The car had mud all over it, some of Paul's things were inside, and Sarah's backpack was in the car stuffed with her beanie babies. The car was processed and no fingerprints were found. The moving of the cars makes it look like there were multiple people involved, but it is possible one person could have pulled this off. They could have driven Lorenzo's car and dumped it, then walked back to Tough Movers. They then drove Paul's car to Denver. They could have used public transportation to get back to Westminster, or perhaps they even lived in Denver. 
But that seems like it would have taken more time than it needed to, and it's much more likely there were at least two people driving in tandem during the car dumping. Over the next couple of weeks, the police had Paul's moving trucks on their lot for processing. Sharon asked the police for the vehicles back when they finished with them. She was still holding on to hope that Paul was alive. Maybe the police were right. Maybe he ran off with Sarah, afraid Michelle was going to move her out of state, and that he would show back up when he came to his senses. So Sharon decided to try to keep his business afloat so he wouldn't lose everything. The police cleared the moving trucks for return, but when Sharon got them, there was still the blood and tissue evidence on the truck. Whether they hadn't finished processing it or there was a mix-up with the paperwork and it was returned too early, Sharon was basically being given back the evidence. She called the police and they came and picked up the trucks again. The trucks were then processed by the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. They did luminol tests of the inside of the trucks and at the parking lot. It's not hard to imagine how Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo's families were feeling at this point. They had been missing for weeks, and there had barely been an investigation. But now that it started, it was going to prove Westminster's theory all wrong. Using luminol, there was blood spatter found on both trucks. The big moving truck that Paul had used that day even had blood in the cab of the truck. So when Jerry pointed out early on that it was too clean, he was right. Someone had tried to clean up all the blood. And Jerry had pointed out something else to the officer that same day, the oil spill. That was tested and it also tested positive for blood. It's thought that someone poured a little oil on top of a blood spot to obscure it. And it worked, for a few weeks at least. DNA tests would confirm the blood was Sarah and Paul's. They also tested the piece of scalp and some hair found on the truck's fender. The scalp was DNA matched to Paul and the hair to Sarah. More than a month after Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo disappeared, investigators concluded that Sarah and Paul could not have survived whatever caused the loss of blood. Obviously, no one believed this was a parental kidnapping anymore. The theory of the crime was that the trio was ambushed when they returned to the lot on Sunday evening in a premeditated attack. They believed whoever was involved knew Paul's routine and knew to expect him back at the lot. But let's be honest, Paul didn't have a particularly complicated routine. He parked his car at the lot in plain view. Then he used the truck to do the job, returning later for his car. It's pretty much what you would expect, and no one would have had to stake him out for days to figure this out. 
The only thing here is that Paul was not scheduled to work that day. Neither was Lorenzo. But it is possible that Paul's car was spotted when his killer or killers drove by earlier in the day, and the murder was carried out with premeditation and planning, but only a few hours of it. Whether it was premeditated for weeks or more spur of the moment, all indications are that they were confronted at the lot when they returned. There are two things that really support this ambush theory. The first was the new lock. The logical explanation for that was that someone cut the lock to get onto the lot, likely to hide out. In their cover-up, they replaced the lock so it wouldn't be obvious that something bad happened. And again, this cover-up worked. The second sign this is an ambush was the blood in the cab. It doesn't look like Paul even made it all the way out of the truck before he was attacked. After being ambushed and killed, the bodies were then moved. There was no sign of Lorenzo's DNA at the scene, but the authorities did not believe he was involved in what happened to Sarah and Paul. They think it's possible that Lorenzo may have been enlisted under the threat of death to help, and then he was killed elsewhere. There were witnesses who said they saw the moving truck leave the lot around 7 or 8, the night the three went missing. It returned around midnight. That gives a four to five hour round trip for where the bodies could have been dumped if the truck was in fact used for that purpose, which the evidence supports. There was vegetation found in the radiator of the truck, making it also possible that the truck had been near a body of water. There are a number of bodies of water in the area, especially within a two-hour drive, including one near where Lorenzo's car was left. The truck's loading ramp, some moving blankets, and straps were also missing, and there is speculation these may have been used to move and then weigh down the bodies in water. But in spite of searching lakes within a two- or three-hour drive of tough movers, nothing was found. After hiding the bodies, according to this new theory, the killers drove the truck back to the parking lot. Unfamiliar with the large vehicle, they couldn't back it in neatly, but rather pulled in crooked. Their goal in returning the moving truck, hiding the cars, and replacing the lock on the gate was to make it appear like Paul and Lorenzo had returned to the lot and left without issue. Then the police wouldn't immediately suspect foul play. And that's exactly what happened. This cover-up worked. And I don't really feel like it worked because it was particularly brilliant. I think it worked because a police officer or two got so focused on their theory of what happened, they refused to look at the evidence that did not back up their position. 
It took four or five weeks for this to become a homicide investigation, and who knows how much evidence or how many witness statements were lost in that time. But with the investigation now going, over 80 people have been interviewed in the intervening years. The case was profiled on The Montel Show, on MSNBC, and on America's Most Wanted. But all that came out of this was more speculation. One theory that was discounted early on, like I said, was that Lorenzo was somehow involved and that he has been on the run ever since. This one falls apart pretty quickly when you look at it. First, there was absolutely no motive. He had only been working there for a few months without incident. Plus, Lorenzo was a very involved father. He was the custodial parent of his son. Whatever reason he had to kill Paul and Sarah and go on the run would have to have been worth losing his family. And there is absolutely no sign that he had a motive like that. If anything, Lorenzo is a forgotten victim in his own murder. Half the time, the case is summarized as Paul Skiba and his employee. Just an employee. Lorenzo's loss devastated his mother. And it devastated his estranged wife. They were talking about possibly reconciling at the time of his disappearance. And his children were left absolutely heartbroken at losing their father. And so then they see him in the media portrayed as a suspect or as the employee. Public grief, grieving a case that's in the media, it's already complicated enough. This just made it even worse. So let's get to a few more theories that are more possible. One is that this was the work of an angry ex-employee or ex-business partner in the case of Paul's cousin Herbert. When Herbert got out of prison, he returned to Tough Movers for a short time. Why he left depends on who you ask. Herbert told Jessica Centers for that article I've mentioned a couple times already that Paul bought him out because Herbert was doing well in the stock market and he just wanted to move on. But Paul's friend said that he was told it was because Herbert was caught stealing from the company. Being cut out of a business might be a motive, but it seems like a pretty thin one since all the other indications are that Herbert simply moved on. Someone who Paul fired who was angry was his girlfriend Teresa's brother, Tom. According to Jerry, Tom was fired a few months before the disappearances. When Jerry saw Tom after, he yelled, At Jerry, you're next. Sharon said Tom also threatened her and said he was glad Paul was dead. Now, we might have an easier time writing Tom off as a hothead who ran his mouth too much, if not for what happened in 2011. In June 2011, Tom was living in a motel, and he had been kicked out for non-payment. He went over to his mother's house and put his misplaced anger 
over the situation onto her. He started railing at her and blaming her for all of his problems. He just got more and more angry the longer his own tirade was going on. So he went to the kitchen, grabbed two knives, and stabbed his mother as she tried to escape the house. He managed to wound her five times before she got out of that house. She's lucky she survived. He punctured a lung, and he lacerated her liver. These were not superficial wounds, and he delivered them with force. Based on the court records from this incident, we learn that Tom had 15 years of documented mental health issues and noncompliance with taking his prescribed medication. On top of that, he also had a history of illicit drug use. Tom initially pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity to the charge of attempted murder. The first doctor who examined him said Tom was unable to distinguish right from wrong at the time of the attack, which is the legal measure of insanity. The state managed to successfully counter this, and Tom was convicted by a jury. He was sentenced to 28 years, and he is currently still serving that sentence. He appears to be eligible for parole in a few years. Tom's behavior toward Paul's family and friends after the disappearances is really inexcusable and cruel. When you consider it in the context of his mental illness and illicit drug use, then maybe the behavior looks less directly incriminating and more a sign of how unwell he was. But then we see what he was later arrested for, attempting to kill his mother, so we can see how violent his temper was. But there may be others out there with a grudge against Paul. Paul was a really nice guy. He liked to give people a chance, but he wasn't the type that was going to give someone a second or third chance, especially if they were careless or they broke something on a move or they didn't show up for a job or even if they were disrespectful at a job site. So there were others who he fired, like I mentioned before. The names of those other people have not come up in the media, but I have to assume that the CBI followed up on them. The theory that appears to be the official police theory is that this was drug-related. Lorenzo's estranged wife, Misha, said that one of the detectives told her that Paul was selling drugs and using tough movers as a front. That's not to say that Paul was a major player on the scene or they thought he was, but even small-time dealers can get caught up with the wrong people. Sarah and Lorenzo were killed because they were there and they were witnesses. Teresa also said she knew what happened and it did involve drug dealers, but Paul wasn't one of them. To make some extra money, Paul rented out some of the parking spots on the gated lot where he kept his trucks. And the people he rented to were the same people he bought marijuana from. 
For some reason, Paul ended up having the cars towed after a while. The men were angry about this. There was a violent confrontation, and Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo were killed. But Teresa named another suspect on a cable news special herself. I can't find this clip online, so I am having to rely on what people have reported it said. Teresa said that she was not involved, but that the police told her they believed she was. They even told her that she failed a polygraph. The authorities have not publicly made a statement that I can find one way or the other about Teresa or about her polygraph. And we know that they can legally lie about lie detector results to put pressure on a suspect to talk. So even if they told her that she failed the polygraph, it doesn't mean that is true. The motive for Teresa here is pretty clear. Paul was kicking her out and indicated to others that he was going to seek custody of the baby. Perhaps in that fight they had that weekend, he told her about his intentions. Both Teresa and her sister made comments about Paul and Lorenzo being dead or never coming back within days of them going missing before any of the blood evidence or bullet holes were found to even indicate a crime happened. There was a witness who said they heard a woman screaming on the night Paul, Sarah, and Lorenzo went missing. The scream came from the direction of the parking lot. But I would be interested in knowing more about when the witness made the statement. If it was five weeks later when the investigation was picking up steam, it's much less reliable than if the person told it to someone the next day or even within that first week. Jerry, Paul's friend and employee, said he talked to Teresa and she admitted she went to the lot on the night the three disappeared and she asked him not to tell the police. So according to Jerry, she's putting herself at the crime scene. But Teresa has also established that she was worried when Paul hadn't come home. She had called the police about it. She had called his mother about it. So if she was that worried, it actually makes sense she would drive over to the lot to see if he was there. And if she thought she was already a suspect, I can see why she wouldn't want the police to know this. If she was saying she was super worried about Paul, but then she stayed home and did nothing, that would have been more suspicious to me. This case is now over 21 years cold, and all we have are a handful of names, some shadowy drug dealers, and 21 years of heartache for Paul and Sarah's family, Sarah's mother, and Lorenzo's family. There have been no signs of any of the three since February 7th, 1999. And something we don't often get into is the more practical aftermath. We know the emotional devastation, but there is also a financial toll of having a missing adult. Sharon was given control over Paul's finances, but she couldn't have her son declared dead until he was missing for five years. 
then she would have to go to court to prove that there was no sign that he was alive and get this court order. Due to court delays, it was well past the five years before she could have him declared dead. In that time, the court ordered Sharon to pay Teresa child support out of Paul's accounts for the baby. Teresa said she had a paternity test done to prove that Paul was the father, but Sharon has said she never saw the results. But Paul put his name on the birth certificate, and he wasn't around for a DNA sample. So the court defaulted to his signature on the birth certificate to establish paternity. Sharon also had to keep paying the premiums on Paul's life insurance or it would lapse and nothing would be paid out when he was eventually declared dead. Sharon also had to keep paying the mortgage on Paul's house because she couldn't get permission to sell it and it wasn't in her name. It was Paul's house. Beyond that, Paul had taken out a second mortgage on the house to pay off some credit card debt right before he disappeared. So now she can't even refinance the house to get a lower payment because so much was owed on it. And if we want to complicate things even more, Sharon wasn't Paul's surviving heir. It was his baby with Teresa. So when Paul was finally declared dead and everything was settled financially, Teresa got everything for their son. Sharon ended up pretty much ruined financially. In 2013, Sharon became terminally ill with cancer. She went to Minnesota to spend Christmas with her other son and some close friends. Less than a week after arriving in Minnesota, she died from her cancer, never having learned what happened to Paul or Sarah. Some time after Sharon's death, some cold case detectives decided to take a look at this. They realized they needed to start at square one. They needed to re-interview everyone and try new avenues. They also submitted some additional DNA evidence in the case for testing. They did find two new witnesses who did have some information to provide. With the information from the old investigation combined with these new witness statements, some of the detectives feel that they know what happened. As they say, though, what you know and what you can prove are two different things. Without more evidence, more information, and maybe without Paul, Sarah, or Lorenzo's bodies being found, this case will just not be ready to take to court. And you can't help but wonder if it would have been two decades ago had the police not waited a month to start investigating. 